Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans, and Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. So uh, it's it's you and I. We, we may have guests popping in, you know, here and there. So Santiago, you you've been dying to get on the show. What what do you got in store for us today? Well, I uh, just wanted to comment how much uh, fun I had at the Swiss Zoom Summit. I think it was a great meeting. We got to meet in person and yeah. got to hang out with uh, with people that you normally don't see, especially since I live on this side of the world. Um, I don't get to do this often, so that's a great time, you know, CJ again and uh, listen to Dirk and Martine, who are yeah. always wonderful to hear, had the chance to present, so that's, that was a highlight for me and, you know, see Linda Thompson, Marie Swingle, and all the people, I mean, everybody who's somebody in this field was there, which was great, yeah, great to, you know, to, to, to share with friends and, you know, get some uh, new knowledge, which is always handy. Now, there'll be a link to the summit put up for purchase. I'm sure we'll we'll see that somewhere on Gray Matters. Yeah. Uh, but just to wet everybody's whistle to pique their interest, uh, you did uh, a segment on sports psychology, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I spoke about sports psychophysiology and my experience in the field and how I noticed that athletes for, for the most part, or for, or for, a, for a great part of my life, um, when I work with athletes, I end up doing more clinical work than actual peak performance work. Uh, because there's this misconception that athletes tend to be perfect people without any problems. And, you know, sometimes when there's clinical issues, they present them with even more intensity than, than non-athletes. You know, sleep disorders and depression and anxiety are quite common among athletes. And, you know, people who go into the, the peak performance world tend to think that it's all glamorous and romantic. And sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you just have to deal with very sad things. You know, when I first started with, I remember when I first started doing my, my internship at the place where I was within the first week I was assigned figure skating and within my first week there I had a, an athlete that um, had a fight with a girlfriend and then tried to kill himself so Ooh. that was uh, a really rough introduction into into the real world because you know here I was much younger than I am right now and thinking that oh my god this is going to be a great experience and I don't have to do any clinical work and it's all going to be fun and games and boom, within the first week, this, this athlete tries to commit suicide. And then a couple of weeks later, working with a female hockey player, she tells me that she's uh, she got a, she's got an eating disorder. So then I said, well, this is not the way I initially thought it was going to be. So I better learn some clinical psychology. And I got into clinical psychology. And I ended up many times... Um, intervening with with clinical stuff with anxiety, depression, poor sleep, uh, trauma from injury, trauma from sexual abuse, more so than than doing actual peak performance related work. And you know the prevalence is higher than we want to think, and that, that we probably would like to accept. 
but I think it's important work. And so I did I did present on my experience. I, I presented on some EEGs from you know from athletes with sleep problems and some with anxiety. Um, and it was it was great because we got to interact with the audience and they got to participate and see that if there's if there's interest in this line of work, well, that you better be trauma informed, that you better be clinically informed, that you better know the sport or at least know as much as you know about the sport. Because that's the other thing. There's, you know, there's professionals who go into the field and um, they think because they've seen a sport on ESPN or something that they know all there is to know about it. And, you know, you don't need to have played the sport, but you need to be exposed to it and learn about it. And I think that's quite important. And, you know, I had a great time doing it. Um, and I think, you know, that, that line of work is important as well. The same, you know, the same principle applies to when I work with corporates. Um, you know, we call, we call them corporate athletes here in Singapore. And it's the same thing. You know, these are peak performers, but they struggle with sleep. They struggle with trauma. You know, the, the prevalence of trauma in CEOs, CFOs is really high, more so than you would like to think. Isn't it, uh, I want to say more fun, but more fulfilling to work with corporate people, with working with athletes than just the regular pop population? Because it's so hard to get somebody that isn't already motivated or wants to improve to get them to change their behaviors. And uh, it's le is it less frustrating dealing with uh, corporate people and, and, and athletes? I would say yes and no. Uh, yes, because of what you're saying, because of what you're stating, which is they are innately and intrinsically motivated, and therefore they you don't need to convince them, persuade them. You just need to push the right buttons, and then you get them going. But at the same time, no, because sometimes they can be. I mean, they can be difficult to deal with. You know, they have their egos, and you know, because they're peak performers, sometimes they don't think they need to hear what you have to say so it can it can be challenging at time and, and and you do need to grow a spine in this line of work i mean you really need to be assertive and and stand your ground because some of them might you know they, they, some of them can be dominant and they try to dominate you and they try to um talk over you and discredit what you're saying so you, you need to learn how to be straightforward you know with these people but but i agree with what you say you know they're highly motivated so it's more fulfilling because if you tell an athlete i want you to jump out of this roof he goes feet first or head first they just you know they don't think twice about it um but at the same time it's harsh you know i mean they the the, the pressures that they experience are much larger than the, the pressures that somebody who's a, a regular Joe experiences in many ways, um, especially when it comes to injury, especially when it comes to sponsors and in the, in the and as, as far as athletes are concerned. And for the corporates is always, for the corporates, the thing that I find is there's never enough. They, they, they don't have a way to set limits there and they're seldom satisfied with their achievements. And that can be very dangerous because from there they can go into ex, um, start experiencing with the wrong things um, just to burn the money that they earn. And, and many of them end up going broke in a blink of an eye. It's cool. just as they 
are successful, they can fail very quickly and quite drastically. Do you find with the corporate people, I, I just know being in the business world that when you're dealing with somebody at the C-level, let's just say when they're handed a PowerPoint, let's just say it's 10 pages, you might as well only make it one page because they go to the very last page and they make a quick decision based on quick information. And what you're trying to do to help them out, it doesn't always happen that quickly. Plus, they have ADD, don't they? A lot of them do. There's a high comorbidity with 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 ADHD and ADD. You know, I, I have seen some particular biomarkers and neuromarkers in peak performance, especially the corporates. One, um, I've seen that many of them do make a lot of beta brainwaves frontally, especially fast activity. And when I say fast, I'm speaking 24, 25, 26, 27 hertz, which is really fast for somebody, let alone a peak performer. What I find interesting, though, is that to some extent, they do need these fast frequencies because it's what makes them thrive and is what makes them tick at the same time. And, and I, what I mean by that is if, if you down train it too much, then you cut the drive, you cut the ambition, and that's very dangerous. So to some degree, they need this busy brain and they, they need some degree of this ADHD to be successful. Because I what I've seen as a constant behavior, as a common behavior, is that if they don't feel the rush, if they don't feel the capacity to make decisions impulsively, it doesn't work for them. So sometimes it's not about being rational. Sometimes it's about making split-second decisions or sometimes decisions without thinking too much. And that's when they get, you know, sometimes they sign deals and they get the mergers. So you need to cut it down to some degree to keep them from doing mistakes and doing stupid stuff that they regret later. But at the same time, you have to keep it so that they have that edge. They need the edge. Without it, they don't function. And... When I do a brain on a corporate, I have to be very careful how I frame it. And I tell them, look, I'm just going to tweak this down just a little bit because I know that if I do too much, you're not going to like it. And they tell me all the time, you're absolutely right. I need this. I need the adrenaline. I need the emotion. I need the danger. I need the uncertainty because otherwise it doesn't work for you. And they make it work. I don't know. Many times I don't know why. I don't know how, but they make it work. And it's very interesting. So the one that's one of the markers I find, you know, I find that they also have a lot of activity in the in the anterior cingulate cortex, which in a clinical patient you would label diagnosis oppositional defiant, maybe obsessive compulsive, maybe ADHD. But again, this degree of stubbornness, this degree of cognitive inflexibility really works for them because you need to don't you need to not listen to the naysayers if you want to be successful you need to listen to to yourself and you need to persist when everybody's telling you it's not going to work you need to believe that it will work and you need that healthy dosage of stubbornness uh, of being obstinate and obtuse if you want to make it in that world so i find that the ones that have that biomarker when again when you can tweak it and you can dim um, the, the, the intensity, just the right amount, it really works for them and they love it. 
what what they want to get rid of is usually you know sometimes I'm so stubborn that I miss on a good deal. So I want you to keep me stubborn, but just don't make me just don't. I don't want to be stubborn to the point that I'm losing opportunities. I want to be stubborn to the point that I can persist and persist until I, I make it. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the 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 beta pattern over at CZ is another one that I see commonly, which is the drive, the obsession, the, the persistence. But on the on the downside is the insomnia, and that's where probably they. Uh, struggle uh, quite frequently and the way it presents in them is because they are very creative individuals they go to bed 10 in the evening and then three in the morning they wake up and they wake up with a great business idea the problem is that they cannot shut the brain down because they get so excited and they have their you know they have the beta ongoing which is a wakefulness drive plus the excitement that that brings and many of them tell me, yes, I just wish I had these ideas at a different time, not at two in the morning, three in the morning when I go, when I want to go to sleep and I want to keep sleeping because I wake up and I dwell on the idea and then my brain won't shut up. So next day I'm very tired. And again, you have with the neurofeedback, you tweak that the best you can. So you, you bring the wakefulness drive down, but you keep the drive and the, and the ambition um, steady enough that they can still be creative, that they can still have ideas in the spur of the moment, that they can stay creative and interested without the, you know, without paying the price, um, without sleep paying the price for it. So, you know, it's very interesting. I mean, the brains of peak performers are, are different and, and they're very interesting. And I think they can teach um, they can teach us many lessons because I think that to some degree we can replicate these patterns these patterns in other individuals to help them be more successful in their own lives, depending on your own definition of what success is, of course. You talk about the anterior cingulate, and I have you on the show because you know what you're doing. I know how to podcast Santiago, but what I've heard from the people I've had on the show with the anterior cingulate, it's, it's the on off switch for cravings. Can it be more than just cravings for food, alcohol? Can it be cravings for risk and, and, and other things? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's exactly what you, you're hitting it. Um, uh, on the head when you when when you say the cravings for for risk so again what they want is to be able to take calculated risks because sometimes they they take too many risks and it can be costly you know we're not talking pocket money we're talking millions of dollars so if if, if you have a hedge fund manager who's who has a lot of accounts millions and billions well you don't want them to get too cocky because then you know you're playing with people's money and that's not a good thing. Uh, and that's when it can get dangerous. It can it can get addictive. So because the anterior cingulate can be involved in addiction. You know, if you do something and you like it, you run the risk that you're going to like it too much. And the problem is if you like it too much, you're going to shut down the part of the prefrontal cortex that tells you, hey, wait, wait, hold on a second. Let's think about it. You know, let's let's just let's think about what we're doing here. You know, that that part of the brain shuts down and you're just doing it because you're running on the adrenaline. So when you assess, when you look at the, the brain waves, then you have to tell this individual, look, 
I know that you thrive on the adrenaline. I know that you like it, but we need to be careful because it can backfire very easily and very quickly. And like you say, it becomes an addiction. It becomes an addiction to the gambling. Um, it becomes an addiction to playing with someone else's money. Uh, it becomes an addiction playing with their own, you know, by risking their own career. Um, and that's what happens, you know. And we all know that, I mean, the the the, the place with the highest rate of, of psychopaths, it's Wall Street. That's where the highest incidence of psychopaths is. And there's nothing you can do for psychopaths. But that's exactly what the problem is, that you have all these people who have no compunction about playing with people's money, who have no contemplation for the consequences of their actions. So would I, would I say that many of these corporates have psychopathic traits? Maybe to some degree, without saying they're full-blown psychopaths. Maybe they have some. And with those individuals, you can tweak now, if you have a full-blown psychopath, there's nothing you can do. And, you know, you, have, you you better hope and pray that they don't start doing whatever they do. Because once once that happens, then, you know, all hell spread looks and we see it in the news all the time. With pharmaceutical industries, with the pyramid schemes, with the Ponzi schemes. And that's the consequence of that. Sometimes it's you just get, you're unlucky, you get a psychopath handling your money. Other times is you get these people with this different functioning brains. They don't know how to modulate them. And, right. and you know, that, that's when you get what happens. Rumination, Santiago, whether you're an athlete or a corporate person, uh, to me, that's the voices in your head, the drive that says, keep going, keep going, keep going. Sometimes the voices in your head can can be a negative thing for you. What is that rumination and how can you how can you correct those voices if you're getting too many negative ones? Right. That's a, that's a very good question. I I think the rumination is a combination of at least two things. One is the overexcitability in that area of the brain, whether you have too much theta brain waves or too many beta brain waves. Uh, it's just that part of the brain not being able to shut down because it's constantly firing. But it's not only that. It, you have to couple it with your own history. What's what's your what's your personal history? Meaning, were you traumatized? That will play into it. Were you told as a child that you were not enough, that you were stupid, that you were an idiot, that you weren't enough? That plays into it. So if you couple your environment with your physiology, well, you have the, the recipe for disaster, right? So in the work with, with somebody who has negative rumination, you have to do both. It's not enough to shut down or calm down the brain because if by default, if by conditioning, if, if by uh, repetitious programming you have that in your mind, it doesn't matter how much you cool down the brain, if you cool the conditioning the being triggered automatically then it, then you're not going to be able to uh, modulate and and optimize it so the the work needs to be parallel you know you can do neurofeedback and biofeedback uh, maybe tms maybe tdcs any form of neuromodulation on the brain and at the same time you, you need to teach the person to reframe that thinking pattern 
which means, okay, so this is my faulty thinking. This is what it means. This is how it makes me feel. And this is the consequence. Let's see how we're going to reframe that. But you cannot do the reframing without modulating the brain. Okay, you need you need to have the, the neurofeedback as sort of a preemptive strike. And then the, the reframing is you sending the troops. So you, you do some, you know, you, you send some, some bombs and then you plow the road, you get the troops ready to invade. And that's how I see it. I, I always see neurofeedback as sort of the preemptive strike, which gets the brain ready. And sending in the troops is the healthy thoughts, the new thinking patterns. And that just takes a lot of repetition because it's not easy to do. You know, changing a faulty mental schema takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. And you need to be uh, straightforward with the person from begin the beginning and tell them, look, if you're expecting um, a quick fix, this is not the work for you. If, if you want a quick fix, this is not going to work. It's going to take some repetition. And you're going to have ups and downs because you do have ups and downs, you know, it takes off, neurofeedback is, it's a noble thing for the, for the individual, they like it, once they get, once they get used to it, eh, not so much, and then you get a drop in, in the motivation, and then up the motivation, down goes the motivation, but it's just very important to work on both elements, especially, you know, the, the programming on your self-esteem, because that's, that's at the core of, of what you think about yourself and how you repeat it in your mind. Well, like you said, you know, depending on your upbringing, life is feedback. Okay. So whatever feedback you had earlier in life, you need some type of feedback to retrain your brain to respond to feedback. Okay. Neurofeedback. Okay. You touch the hot stove, you don't touch it again. Feedback, right? So the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step, Santiago. Somebody that is an athlete, that is a uh, a C-level exec. Heck, it could be somebody that just got out of college and is getting a job for the first time. They're like, man, there's so many choices for self-improvement. What would be the easiest first step? I'll throw a softball at you. Just learning how to breathe. Could that be a good first step? What would be your suggestion? Yeah, you you absolutely got it right. Learn how to breathe. That's the first thing. I always tell people, what's the first thing you do when you come into this world? You breathe. And what is the last thing you do as you leave this world? Stop breathing. So it's it all starts and ends with breathing. And anything in between in your life is about breath. The problem is that people think that we breathe so we don't die. And while that's true there's more to that there's more to it than meets the eye of course right so learn retraining your breath because i don't think you need to learn how to breathe you have to retrain your breath and i say that because if you watch a baby breathe babies are natural diaphragmatic breathers and when we were babies we were all natural diaphragmatic breathers it's just it's just that through life's feedback as you say we forget how to breathe. So when we train heart rate variability breathing or buteco breathing or any type of breathing that's favorable to the individual, what you're doing is um, helping them remember how to do it correctly, right? So um, 
that's the first and most important thing. It's a game changer. Um, and in my line of work, when I'm working with somebody who is either you know a housewife to somebody who's the CEO of Fortune 500 company, it doesn't change. Breathing is essentially the same to both individuals. How it impacts them may be different, but the, the foundational principles of the breathing, the, the psychophysiology, the neurophysiology is exactly the same. And they both benefit greatly from doing that. I think that's that's absolutely right. And again, the, I, I think of, of all the pillars that we have discussed before, the one thing that people need to take care uh, of themselves the best they can is sleep. If you learn how, if you remember how to breathe properly and you sleep better, I think you have a, a really good head start in your journey to improvement, the self, you know, the elusive victory within whatever, you know, however you want to frame it. Um, but yeah, breathing is essential. So you brought up sleep, you know, these corporate types, can they really survive on four hours of sleep? I mean, my goodness, uh, surgical residents, medical residents in hospitals, why would you want somebody that's going to work on your body to be sleep De deprived <laughs> how much sleep do you need that's, a, that's the million dollar question um i commonly see with when i do stress profiles um when i approach corporates because they either seek me out or you know i'm casually talking to them at network events they ask me what i do i tell them what i do I always tell them that the, the two main things that I do is the psychophysiological stress profile and the brain map. And the, guess what's the number one thing they tell me? Oh, I don't, I don't get stress. I don't feel stress. The problem is that they become habituated to their stress. They're used to it, but behind the scenes, it's wreaking havoc and it's wreaking havoc in their bodies in their minds and and that's a very strong point to to make with people not only with corporates people in general tend to downplay it you know we always want to we all want to play the tough guy oh i don't get stressed stress doesn't get to me well guess what it does it's just that you're habituated to it now the problem is that for many people the 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 health problems don't present now they present later on and because they don't present at, at, uh, they don't present now, people think they're healthy and they don't have a problem. But with, what they don't know is that they're adding money to that, you know, to that account, which later is going to come bite them in the butt. Because then, you know, you're going to have early dementia, you're going to start with, uh, with the cardiovascular problems, everything that you in your youth, you were able to tolerate later down, is going to bite you in the butt one way or the other. It's going to happen. So, it, it takes a lot of work to educate people that will, but that's why I love the brain map because the brain map, the brain doesn't lie. You can put somebody on a brain, on a, on a QEG, look at the brain waves, and they can tell you, I sleep wonderfully. And the brain says, well, that's not the case. And the, 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 the problem also is that we have developed a culture of reinforcing the wrong behaviors. So in, in corporate world, it's, it's worrisome how much, um, how romanticized not sleeping a lot is. 
you know, the, the, the less you sleep, the more revered you become by your, by your peers and colleagues, you know, and that's a big, that's a big mistake. Um, you know, thankfully people in the way I see it and in my experience, people are more aware of, of sleep. And, you know, when you confront them with a brain map, there's nowhere they can hide. You know, it's like if you have a criminal and they deny, but you show them the DNA, game over, right? So when you when you when you show them the EEG, it's game over for them, and most of them re respond very well to it. Now, in terms of sleep, eight to nine hours is the magic number. I think that remains unchanged. Yes, there is a percentage of the population can, who can go um, on fewer hours, right? Now, the the other problem with sleep is you have you know, scientists like like Matthew Walker and other sleep researchers telling you, um, you know, you need your eight or nine hours because otherwise you're in, in big trouble. Well, I was I was at the summit speaking to one of our colleagues and 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 she, and then she asked me the question, well, why do we need to sleep? And I said, well, you know, it's good for your immune system. It's good for your cognitive system. And she said, well, you know, I'm. 80 something years old, and here I am. So what do you have to say about that? I said, I said to her, well, you bring a very important point, which is we don't have, we, we, something's what we see in research and then what we see in the real world. And that's when I see the problem that not everybody who sleeps poorly dies of diabetes, uh, but develops diabetes, dies of cancer, gets, gets dementia. Um, the problem is that, and that's the problem, Mm -hmm. I still would defend it, the notion that we need to get our eight or nine hours of sleep as much as we can. I would still defend the notion based on my experience and what I've seen in research that um, that number will remain unchanged. That That's not something we can hack, right? really. I, we, and it was not meant to be hacked, I think. I think sleep is one of those behaviors that that is not meant to be hacked. You should leave it alone. You should get your eight to nine hours and then you should protect that principle at all costs. If you're going to physically train or mentally train and you don't get enough sleep, does that reduce the efficiency of the training? It reduces the, 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 the efficiency of your training. It reduces the efficiency of your recovering because your muscles don't recover as much. Your cardiovascular system doesn't recover as much. Your cognitive capacities are not the same. Uh, I mean, sleep remains. In, in in modern times, people will do anything to debunk that notion, and they do it just mainly by engaging in anti-sleep behaviors. But but I think that the, the notion remains the same. I again, the research and the and the data supports that it, invariably and unequivocally. You know, you're eight to nine hours. Um, for for your physical training, for your cognitive training, for your overall health, it's just that it's just so hard to battle with um, so many quote unquote experts, um, you know, um, and influencers and people who who really challenge this notion for one for one reason or another. Um, I just tell people, look, it's your personal choice. the The good news uh, the good news is. Every time I do neurofeedback, the number one behavior people report having optimal changes in is sleep, even if it is not the main purpose of the intervention. And that happens with children, that happens with adults, that happens with teenagers, with senior citizens, 
everybody across the board, the first thing they tell me is I'm sleeping better. When you're sleeping, Santiago, isn't your subconscious sub, subconscious is isn't it processing data to help you make decisions to help you in the future? Uh, what's going on when you're sleeping? Well, that's that's a, another very important, really, really good question. Um, the way it happens is we cycle through we cycle through non-REM sleep, which is your delta theta sleep, which which you start seeing stage two sleep, and then through REM sleep, which is more beta brainwave related, and you need both. There, there's different types of memory processing and learning that take place during non-REM sleep and REM sleep. So you need both, and you need enough enough length of time to allow your brain to cycle through non-REM, REM, non-REM, REM. So slow theta delta sleep, some REM beta sleep, back to delta theta sleep, back to that. And if you shorten the length of your sleep, you're shortening the quality of those cycles. And as you say, that will impact everything that you do on a daily basis, your ability to learn. So to acquire learning and then to consolidate it, your ability to acquire memory and then consolidate that memory, your ability to learn new skills and consolidate the learning of, of those new skills. Um, I think that it will affect, it'll be affected if you don't sleep properly. Now, maybe not so, not to the degree that you're developing some kind of pathology, but to the degree that it will affect your performance, yes. And so the eight or nine hours are essential because that's how we, how us humans cycle through those, um, those, uh, those periods of REM and non-REM. Um, and that's the problem. You know, people start going to bed later. Well, you're missing on the, the, the initial hours are crucial. And, you know, Matthew Walker talks about this in his book. And one of the ways they prevent pilot errors and accidents due to human error is that they have on long-term flights, transatlantic flights they have the pilots nap in the in the in the initial stages of the flight not in the later stages of the flight because that's when they consolidate the sleep better and that's when they get better rest so if the if you're going to have a flight from singapore to san francisco or somewhere else right a long-term flight then you want to have the pilots nap in those initial hours and not in the middle or later the same principle applies when we go to bed. We want to go to bed 10, 11 p.m., wake up at 7 in the morning, right, with first first light, go to the window, get some sunlight to counter the sleep inertia, and that's the period that you need. And that's invariable. If, if, if there was a way to hack it, they would have found it by now, and whoever finds it someday is going to become a gazillionaire. But I don't think that that's going to happen because that's how we were built. And even though we're in the 21st century, we're still wired to sleep. We need it. Our species needs it. So, you know, trying to hack it is just, it's insane. And, and that's why you need that. Santiago, the last thing I'd like to ask you is to set the expectations for somebody that just happened to turn on this podcast and are thinking about do, doing neurofeedback, setting the expectation because people want to come in and they think, well, I'm just going to take this, 
procedure, this training, and all of a sudden I'm going to get better right away like a pill. Could you like say start to finish how this should usually go in a time frame? Because everybody is different. I get it. Everybody, you know, has their own thumbprint. But again, dealing with the corporate types, you're like, well, I want the I want to fix and I want it now. Set the proper expectations for the people that are listening to the podcast for the first time on neurofeedback. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the first thing that I should say is that everybody can benefit from neurofeedback. And it, it's usually believed it's it's probably more pop culture that neurofeedback is for those who are broken somehow. And that's that could be farthest or farthest from the from truth, right? Everybody can benefit from neurofeedback. You know, if, if you're not feeling well, if you're quote unquote broken, well, neurofeedback is great for you. But if you are fine and you just want to do better, even if it is one percent better, neurofeedback is for you. So the, the, what people need to understand is that nothing that's worthwhile in life or everything that's worthwhile in life, I should say, takes time. When people tell me, you know, yeah, but 20 sessions of neurofeedback, I don't know if I have the time to commit to it. I tell them, look, when you were born, how long did it take you to learn to crawl, walk, sleep, read and write? Took you years. And there's still no bypassing the process of development, right? How long did it take you to learn how to drive? How long did it take you to play that instrument? How long did it take you to, to master your career? And you're telling me that, that you don't have time for 20 or 40 sessions of neurofeedback. It's just, you just don't have the intent. You don't have the motivation. And that's the way it is. Anything that's worthwhile in life will take time. If you go on a plane, the pilot that's flying that plane was just not did not take a 30-hour flying program on a simulator and then he applied for a commercial pilot license and he was hired by the airline. It took him years so that your bot can get from point A to point B as safely as possible. So people need to understand that neurofeedback is wonderful, but they need to invest the time. Now, if you think about it, let's say you're taking medication and you've been taking medication for a good 10 years of your life. You've been doing psychotherapy and it hasn't been that successful for five, 10 years of your life. 40 sessions of neurofeedback is nothing compared or 60 sessions of neurofeedback is nothing compared to all the money you have invested in medication and in trainings with uh, with the guru uh, who is uh, you know fashionable on Instagram, on reading self-help books, on taking trips to India to do yoga retreats. It doesn't compare. So it's really a matter of your priorities. And again, people tell you, I don't have time to practice 20 minutes of breathing per day. I tell them, okay, if I take your cell phone now and I look at your browsing history, I can guarantee you that you can fit those 20 minutes with no problems, okay? So we can try to do all the advertisement that we want. We can say all the pretty things that we want. It boils down to people making the decision and taking the time to take care of themselves. We have so, we have been unfortunately conditioned, especially by social media to think that everything's a quick fix now. 
And life remains the same as it was in the 1600s. Things take time. Yes, we have technology that makes a lot, a few things better, but the the essentials of human life are the same as they, as they were 200 years ago. You are born, you learn, you go to school to learn to read, write, walk, talk. Then you go to college, and then you every day you grind to get good at what you do, so you get to a point where you're financially uh, stable, where you're in demand everything you do you know in and i'm just now seeing the rewards of the last 15 years in my career too it took me 15 years of hard work to get to the point where i am it didn't happen overnight mm-hmm. it took a lot of hard work so if i had the expectation you know when i go into the field of neurofeedback that i was going to be at like jake okamani in three years how long has jake been doing this a million plus EEGs, plus 40 years. And he's still learning to, right? So uh, again, for people who are coming into the, the podcast, follow us because we have great guests. We have great topics. Neurofeedback is wonderful. It's very helpful. And, it, and the time you invest in it is nothing compared to what you've experienced before. Financially, spiritually, personally, psychologically, emotionally, it really, it's worthwhile. Santiago, how can people find more about you? Let's just say they're in Singapore. Maybe they want to do a Zoom session with you just to ask questions. How do they get a hold of you? The easiest way would be through my, uh, my, my YouTube channel, Santiago Brand. That's my YouTube channel. And my Instagram is uh, NeuroSantiago, N-E-U-R-O, Santiago, NeuroSantiago. That's how they best find me. Uh, they can drop me a message. They can uh, go check my YouTube channel. And I'd be happy to talk about neurofeedback at, at the brain with whomever is interested. We'll have all the contact information and details of our podcast. Santiago Brand, another fantastic showing. Thank you for coming on, my friend. Thanks for having me. I, I love doing this, so I hope to see you again soon. Oh, absolutely. NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you.